What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey. Read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. The Pendant The sky chamber cloud rider skimmed just above the surface of the vast, glassy expanse of the waters of Loch Shiile. The Scottish tarn was essentially a tear in the flesh of the earth, a rip in the crust, filled with dark waters from underground sources that welled up like the blood of the very world itself. The loch was flanked on either side by steep, sharp, craggy black mountains, which made overland passage nearly impossible to this wilderness highland pool. The cloud rider suddenly let forth an expanding shockwave of light and a sound like a trumpet call. The air around the craft shimmered and distorted. As it did so, Max noticed something strange. Now the water was rippling, actually leaving a wake as they passed over it. It was no longer perfectly silent, perfectly still. Had time started up again? Without warning, the cloud rider dove sharply into the waters of the lock, slicing neatly below the surface without a splash. Ian? Max growled, arms flailing for something to hold on to. Don't worry, Ian replied without looking up from his geese. I only created a small bubble of flowing time around us, about fifty feet in either direction, just so the water's not like stone so we can actually go underwater. Otherwise it would be time frozen like rock. It's okay, it's nothing to worry about. The cloud rider continued to descend beneath the black waters for the better part of half an hour. The foursome was already at a greater depth than any point on the ocean floor. No continental shelf, no oceanic rift or deep sea chasm ran deeper. For this reason, although the children couldn't have known it, legend had it that the lock was bottomless. No sonar ping or submarine dive had ever found one, despite repeated attempts. And for this reason, Anki must have chosen to hide the pendant here. No craft known to the black-headed ones could possibly descend to this depth without being crushed. Only a sky chamber, a Nuburian vessel, architected with the reality-bending jewels of the Dreamtime, could hope to withstand the crushing pressure on its hull. The pendant cannot be found by anyone until you arrive. But what did that mean exactly? Everything had to be somewhere even if it was in a book or something like that. Which meant that, given enough time, anything could be found, right? Abruptly, the cloud rider shifted direction. They had apparently reached a fissure in the bottom. The sky chamber entered the opening. Ian slowed their speed and turned up the outside lighting so that they could see better. They were in an underwater tunnel, hewn roughly from the earth. The craft bobbed and weaved along the passageway, avoiding spikes of stone and razor-sharp stalactites. Casey found she was holding her breath as though she were underwater herself and not inside of a ship. And then they were going up. After another few minutes, they all gasped in surprise as the cloud rider broke surface. Through the viewing jewel, they saw that they had surfaced in a vast cavern with an air pocket that held the viscid, inky water of the lock to a large underground great lake. The sky chamber had emerged near a stone shoreline of this lake. 
Within moments, Ian beached the craft, hull resting in the shallow water. This is it, Ian said, finally looking up from his geese. This is where he hid the bloody thing. Max nodded briskly and exhaled. Well, let's go get it over with then. There's a portal on the top. We can get out that way, Ian said. What about him? Max asked, nodding at Heh. Him? Oh, he'll be fine. The force field will stay on even after we leave. Don't worry, he isn't going anywhere. With that, the foursome followed Ian through the craft and up to the exit portal. They emerged, standing in the outer hull of the sky chamber. Max saw that the cavern they were in was impossibly large. So large, in fact, that it was almost as though they were outdoors. There was even a light breeze. The cavern was like a gulf or void in the deeps of the earth, and seemed to stretch for miles and miles in every direction. The sky chamber gave off a soft illumination, something like bright candlelight, enabling them to see a fairly long distance, and yet the only thing they could make out was a cracked and mottled stone plane, like sun-baked mud extending endlessly in every direction. Something like lightning suddenly crackled in the stratospheric upper reaches of the cavern. Zigzagging white bolts of current snapped high above, and then faded, followed by a booming, thunderous report. Other brief flashes echoed soundlessly in the reaches of the deeps around them, like jewels momentarily igniting in sympathy, and then fading back into the endless abyss. "'What is this place?' Max asked in astonishment. "'Remember Enki's tale?' Ian explained. "'The Nuberians were master miners.' and they were here for like hundreds of thousands of years. They probably carved all kinds of tunnels under the earth that no one knows about. But I don't think they mined out all this. It's just too big, even for them. This cavern is some kind of natural formation. and just dug a tunnel to it from underneath the lock. But I do think we're further underground than anyone has ever been before, Ian whispered in amazement. Well, I mean anyone other than Enki and his people, I guess. But we're really deep. Nobody's ever been this deep and told about it. No one knows what underground at these depths is really like. Max was contemplating stepping off the craft and onto the stone beach when he asked Ian, So, what now? What exactly are we looking for here? Oh, uh, a pyramid. It should be around here somewhere. The pendant is inside, Ian replied. Enki called it the Pyramid of the Arches. An underground pyramid? Max asked. You mean like that one? Casey asked, pointing inland. They turned and followed her finger. In the next flash of lightning, they saw a massive, bone-white pyramid standing incongruously upon the vast underground plain. It was easily as large as the Great Pyramid, staggering, towering, awesome, and stunning. But instead of the familiar sun-blasted and broken sand-colored stone blocks of the Great Pyramid at Giza, this pyramid was smooth, sheer, and white. It wasn't ruined with weather and age. In fact, it looked almost new. The foursome gasped as they saw it. Max took his backpack off and dug out a flashlight. He flicked it on and pointed it at the structure for a better look. Instantly, the beam was reflected back, seemingly amplified. Strong light blasted about the cavern, yet even this illumination was instantly sapped by the thickness of the dark gulf around them. Even so, they had to shield their eyes from the dazzling glamour blasting back at them from the pyramid. Polished limestone, Ian breathed. The original Giza pyramid was covered in it before it was stripped off by invaders. Max turned to him incredulously. Ian, how do you always know all this crap? Ian shrugged. Discovery Channel. My dad watches it all the time. <laughs> all right, let's go, Max said. The foursome approached the ancient structure along the blistered ground, hearts knocking. They huddled close together without realizing it, moving in a clump, even Casey and Sasha. There was a ramp leading up from the ground to the outer wall of the pyramid. It, too, was immaculately tiled limestone, reflecting any hint of light like a powerful white mirror. Both Casey and Max shone their flashlights now, two bobbing beams in the darkness, causing a milky halo to envelop the pyramid ramp like mystical power. As they ascended, 
they could see the reflections beneath them like a polished floor. The ramp itself seemed to stretch and yawn further and further out with each step, like it would never end. The way was long and steep and deceptive. It looked shorter to the eye than it actually was. Finally, just when Ian started to suspect some word magic or other trick was at work other than a simple optical illusion, the distance suddenly collapsed and became reasonable, logical. In another heartbeat, they found themselves panting and out of breath at the very outer wall of the pyramid itself. Max sagged. There was no visible door of any kind. The polished white megaliths fitted seamlessly and perfectly together, airtight, with no possible way to get inside that they could see. Ian turned, still gasping for air, to Max. Now, it's up to you, Max. The pyramid will only open for a Nuberian, a pure blood, not a human with part Nuberian genetics. The same way that whispering stone wouldn't work for Siren back in the museum, until you accidentally touched it for him. Anki said that you would know what to do. What? Max asked in horrified surprise. But I, I don't know what to do. Well, that's what Anki said when he put that music in my head that got us here. You should have told me. I could have asked him about it. I have no idea how to open this thing up. Sasha looked at him. But you must know, Max. You're thousands of years old. He wouldn't have told Ian that if you didn't know. Casey simmered as Sasha spoke. Her face blasted pure hatred like an oven. Eh, Anki said you'd say that. He also said that nevertheless, you would find a way. He was sure of it, in fact. He also said that there was no use in telling you something you already knew. Max took his pack off. Oh, great, he fumed. Just great. So now Anki expects me to just magically remember. We could be here a really long time, just so all of you know. Try, Ian said. Just give it a try. Look at the wall. What does it remind you of? Max squinted. Um, a wall? No, try harder. I, I don't know, Max said dejectedly. Ian suddenly grabbed him and shook him. Cut it out! Max's eyes flared with anger. What had gotten into Ian? You have to bloody try, dammit! Otherwise, let's go home and let Jadith have her way. She'll even find this place eventually. So, look at the damn wall and remember. Ian's face was red and he was sweating in anger. He was right. Max nodded. He sucked in his breath and approached the wall. After a moment or two, he instinctively ran his fingers along the smooth surface of the stonework. Something about the touch of the stone, the feel of it. Ian was right. There was a deep memory. Then he caught a whiff of it. A powdery odor, faint but there. Trapped moisture puffs. With the scent of limestone as the raw rock was split open. His nose remembered, even if consciously, he didn't. A body memory. Max suddenly flung his gaze into the wall like he was attacking it. Without warning, he felt his awareness spring outward, connecting somehow with the very fabric of the stone. And with that, ancient words came pouring out of his mouth, familiar words though he didn't understand them. They sounded like nonsense syllables in his own ears. Yet he knew, he knew, he was articulating something using words with the power of physical force, words which tapped into the essence of the dream time. Nagath bratha ner tilmun The stones of the pyramid wall began shaking. Something old was stirring, rousing itself like a great beast. White soot suddenly blasted out from the seams between the megaliths, as though some ancient seal were breaking. Blocks started moving, folding inward in a staggered procession, a controlled implosion into the pyramid. Max imagined some mysterious system of weights inside the wall operating, broken caps or seals and sand flooding chambers causing the massive stones to move. When the white dust cleared, Max saw that a rectangular passageway had been opened in the side of the pyramid just in front of them. The megaliths had neatly fallen into trenches on either side of this new doorway, stacked one on top of the other. Sasha and Ian coughed as they tried to keep the ages-old floating soot out of their lungs. 
Right then. Let's have a look then, shall we? Ian said, eyeing Max and trying to conceal his amazement at what he had just done. Wordlessly, the other three followed. They were in a very tall but cramped and narrow corridor. The walls leaned in at a slight angle, coming closer together near the ceiling. A pale light spilled out from some unknown source further down the gallery. It was enough to show that the walls were covered with sparkling gold hieroglyphs and ornate pictograms, perfectly preserved as though they had just been carved and painted there yesterday. They were all done in the familiar Egyptian style, with that primitive perspective technique of having all the figures facing quasi-sideways. Although each figure was colorful, each was also little more than a line drawing. Mm, watch it, Ian snarled after a quick peek. Could be word magic again, you know, like a book. Don't look at it. Look down at your feet if you have to. Despite her foul mood, Casey didn't have to be told that twice. She immediately started counting her toes to avoid the temptation to peek. Sasha, however, seemed not to hear. Sasha, he embarked when he noticed. Close your eyes, now. Sasha immediately squeezed her eyes tightly shut. Ah, crap. I hate bloody word magic, Ian muttered, shivering at the memory of wolves. They all averted their eyes and thought of what to do next. Ah, this is ridiculous. Somebody has to look, Max finally grunted. Or else we came all this way just to stare at our toes. And Anki himself told us to come here. He told Ian to get me to open the pyramid. So we must have to look at it. Maybe he was just lying to us the whole time, Casey said. Maybe we shouldn't trust him. Max stared at her incredulously. Casey, how can you say that? After all Anki had done for them? I don't know, Casey replied sulkily. I don't know why the big deal about all the secrets then. Why didn't he just tell you everything about the pendant when you asked? Maybe he's tricking us. Maybe he's not the good guy he's pretending to be. Max exchanged glances with Ian. I don't even know how you can say that. He paused and sucked in his breath, steadying himself. Okay, I'm going to look at the wall. Just get ready to help me if something bad happens. Ian and Sasha nodded. Max gritted his teeth and looked up. Immediately, he saw that the pictographs illustrated a history. The history of the pendant itself. The first pictograph showed a dazzling star-like white jewel on a chain, held up by a figure who was clearly meant to be a young Enki. The artist had drawn lines of force, radiating from the pendant in all directions. The drawing itself was oversized compared with the rest of the panels, and seemed to convey that this was the reason behind everything that followed, the overarching theme. The next group of hieroglyphs showed two men bowing to an old man on a throne. Anu. Max breathed. Had to be. And Enlil and Enki, two brothers before their father, receiving orders to come to the seventh planet, Earth. The next several scenes mirrored Enki's tale almost exactly. The arrival on Earth, the construction of the city of Erudu, the commencement of the operation of the African gold mines, the revolt of the Nuberian miners. Enki proposing the creation of the primitive worker to replace them. The presentation of a dapa to Enlil. The black-headed ones taking up the pickaxe and mining the gold for the Nuberians, who now reclined at leisure, laughing and drinking. It's okay, Max said. I'm okay. I, I think it's safe to look at them. You can open your eyes now. The other three blinked their eyes open and sighed in relief. They started looking over the inscriptions on the wall as well. Wow, Ian breathed in amazement, eyes drinking in the grandeur of the ancient artistry. Sasha was instantly enchanted as well. While they read, Max skipped ahead. There was the revolt of Amon-Ra and the black-headed ones at the Tower of Babel. Enki afterwards looking on while hordes of black-headed ones wandered aimlessly and yelled at each other in a din of confusion. Next was the story of the secret construction of the Pyramid of the Arches. No other gods were to know of it, it said. The workers were to keep it secret under pain of death. There was Enki, directing his workers in the art of delving stone, shaping it. And then there was a curious passage where Enki seemed to be tearing pages out of a book. He was folding them, twisting them, shaping them alongside the stonework, until the text seemed to suggest 
that the pyramid and the folded pages were somehow the same, indistinguishable. Then, finally, the sealing of the pyramid in antiquity by Enki himself. He stood in front of the tall, narrow doorway as the blocks were raised and fitted into place, creating a sheer and solid wall of white stone. As the other three stared in rapt attention at these inscriptions, Casey, full of impatience and anger, skipped all the way to the far end of the gallery wall where the last pictographs and hieroglyphs were. She cast a casual, disinterested glance at the last several frames. But what she saw startled her to the core. Her eyes began to water. Her breath caught in her throat. A slice of copper zinged through her belly. No, she mouthed. No! And then she let out a blood-curdling scream, thick with true horror, like that of the deepest, most hopeless nightmare. What? What is it? Max demanded, feeling his own stomach suddenly drop out from underneath him. It's going to be something terrible. Something to do with me. Casey had become a standing catatonic. Mutely, she pointed at the last several pictographs like a harbinger of doom. There, rendered as a hieroglyph, was Max, punching himself in the head. Max might have even laughed, except that the stark horror on Casey's face had sucked all the humor out of him. Then, a series of several more all-too-familiar scenes. The eclipse, the time stop, the pocket, the chase by the serpents and mermaids through the mist, Max and Casey struggling to rescue Ian from the book, Max, Casey, Ian, and Sasha at the tower of the Isle of the Dreamtime, talking with Mr. E. Then, the foursome standing outside the pyramid just scant moments ago. But next to this was a new picture, showing a scene that hadn't happened yet. Max, Ian, Casey, and Sasha talking excitedly in front of what seemed to be a giant moon. And the next picture clearly showed Max holding the pendant. It was a white glowing stone on a delicate chain. Max held it in his fist with the jewel dangling free, and again, there were the unmistakable lines of force radiating from it in all directions. Max's heart leapt in his chest. He would be successful. He would find the pendant. But this was where things turned absolutely horrifying, terrifying. For the next pictograph clearly showed Max handing the pendant to Jadith. She wore a wicked grin as she closed her fingers around it like a claw. And the last hieroglyph, the most horrifying one of all, showed Jadith triumphant with the pendant about her neck. There was a collage rendered in a biblical, ancient style of all the cities of the earth and thousands, no millions, billions of people all bowing to her will, all subject to the crushing power of the pendant. Legions of sky chambers were leaving the earth on the way to conquer Nibiru itself. Here, the wall ended. There were no more hieroglyphs, no more pictures, as though hope itself had suddenly run dry. But that's impossible, Max hissed. I would never give it to her. Never, 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 never. Not in a million years. Not for any reason. I swear. We're gonna fail, Ian whispered, stunned, on the verge of sobbing. Oh, no. She wins in the end. Max was already sputtering. No. No. Maybe, maybe it's like what happened with you, Ian. With the wolves. Maybe it just doesn't happen the way it looks he said, grasping for explanations. No, Casey said, voice full of a soggy, hollow hopelessness. This is pretty clear. That's us. You can see our faces. It's us. And you can also see Jada's face. That's definitely her. No, it's not like what happened with Ian. We saw his clothes and we just assumed it was him when it was really Ace. Here, look. You can see everything really, really clearly. So, not a mistake, Sasha finished quietly. So this is what really happens. The tyranny of the page is absolute, Ian quoted Johnny Siren. They all stood in shock, staring at the wall, hoping it would somehow change or not be true. 
trying to think of some reason why it could not be that way. Well, maybe you wouldn't give the pendant to Jadith Max, Ian said, voice shaking. Not the Max Quick we know, I agree. But maybe the other you would. The one you can't remember. You said it yourself, back at the farmhouse. Maybe you really are a sleeper agent of some kind, and this is what you've been waiting for all this time. Why you can't remember anything. This, right here, right now, is what triggers your memory to come back. Then the real you, the alien personality inside of you, takes over right after you get the pendant, and you give it to her. No, that can't be, Max repeated, numb. I would have agreed with you before this. Ian said quietly, pointing at the writing on the wall. But this... This changes everything. And there's another reason why it makes sense, Casey said. Anki would have had to think that you were a good guy for him to tell you where the pendant was in the first place. Otherwise, there would be no way you could have found out. That's probably why you gave yourself amnesia. You had to make sure you didn't remember anything. That way... You could just walk in there and Anki would tell you where it was, thinking you were on his side. It was a trick. It was the only foolproof way you could trick him into telling you where the pendant was. No. No, Max said, backing away in horror from the picture showing him handing the pendant to a grinning Jadith. No. It can't be true. It can't be. Johnny Siren's voice suddenly appeared in his head. That is free will, yes, of course. But it is simultaneously true that your destiny is already written in the stars. And it was his destiny to destroy the world of humans. This is not a contradiction. It was his destiny to put Jadith on the throne of Nibiru. Already written. He was a slave of Jadith, after all. Moffdad had been right to laugh at him when he claimed otherwise the tyranny of the page. He would fail Enki. He would fail the whole world. He would fail Nibiru. Two worlds enslaved. Because of him. Because of Max Quick. It was too much for anyone to bear, to imagine, let alone a small, strange little boy. After a moment of sickening horror, Max pulled himself together. Well... It hasn't happened yet. Tyranny of the freaking page or not. Enki himself sent us here, and I can't imagine it was just so I could hand the pendant over to Jadith. And besides, I'm not going to give it to her. Ian nodded numbly. Sasha did also. But Casey didn't look so sure. Suddenly, Max was startled to see the moon hovering down at the other end of the tall, narrow hallway. What the? It hadn't been there just a moment ago. There had been nothing at the end of the hallway. And now, there was the moon. Ian noticed the look of sudden surprise on Max's face and turned to see what he was looking at. What on earth? Ian asked. It certainly looked like the moon, all right. It was full and throbbing, a round white-blue pearl. It threw silvery light down the gallery like an enchantment. Where did that come from? Ian asked. How can the moon be here? Sasha asked. It can't really be the moon, Max said. No, it is the moon, Casey said, suddenly sure. I don't know how, but that is the real moon. Ian shook his head, not believing. It has to be a hologram or something. Come on, Max said. Let's go see. They followed him down to the end of the hallway, deeper into the heart of the pyramid. They all expected the puzzle of the moon to somehow resolve itself as they got nearer, but to their surprise... It simply got more curious. As they exited the gallery, they found themselves in a large, but very odd, chamber. Visually, the room was confusing even to behold. Max felt his eyes cross as he tried to make perceptual sense of it. It was the same kind of feeling one got looking at an Escher print. It was numinous, chthonic. The gestalt was one of controlled geometric chaos, triangular, dodecahedral, octagonal, and tetrahedral shapes in every direction. Walls of stone sliced up and down, forming planes at odd angles. Some parts of the chamber obscured others. There were sharp corners, walls, outcroppings around which you couldn't see. 
There was no clear floor or ceiling, just interlocking planes, slanted at all kinds of angles and intersections. It looked like reality had been folded or collapsed in on itself, a kind of interdimensional origami. Added to this, there were tall openings like doorways in the walls or planes themselves. They were shaped like arches. The Pyramid of the Arches. And lastly, to their astonishment, the arches all held scenes of different places, like they were portals to other worlds. The arch directly facing them was dominated by a hungry, heavy moon, surrounded by a sky of crisp, scattered diamond stars. Another arch showed a deep green forest valley over the shoulder of a mountain. In another one, there was a sunny beach with bright, crisp colors, a deep azure sea, and dazzlingly white sand. Still another arch led to a dark, blizzard-ridden polar ice cap. Another to a drizzly city somewhere, filled with people in drab clothing, hurrying back and forth, horses and buggies rolling along a cobblestone street, raindrops spangling off the stones. So this is why it's called the Pyramid of the Arches, Ian breathed. As the foursome stood in front of the arch with the moon in it, Casey said, Oh my God. Oh no. What is it, Casey? Max asked, already dreading her answer. It started. We're already in it. This is the first picture. On the wall. The four of us standing in front of a giant moon. Max started. He looked around. Casey was right. They were posed perfectly, looking just as they had in the pictograph. Once again, her intuition was leaping ahead of all of theirs. Max turned to Ian. Is that possible? Could we have entered a book of some kind without even realizing it? Ian thought for a second. I'm not sure. I didn't feel it happen. But it's not always the same. Like when we found Mr. E, we entered the book through a back door. And that was different, too. I suppose the writing on that wall could have been word magic. Which means the whole pyramid could be acting like a big, giant book. Casey nodded. That has to be it, because it's already happening like it shows. We must have entered when we read it. Casey sobbed. She might have said, and it all ends with Max giving the pendant to Jadith. It's okay, Max, Casey continued, eyes hollow with despair. It's not your fault. I know you're not going to be able to stop yourself, and it won't be your fault. I forgive you. She paused a moment and then added, I even forgive you for what will happen to my mommy. Max fumed internally for a moment. He felt an abyss opening up around him. But he calmed himself and then spoke quietly and measured to Casey. You yourself said that I couldn't be a sleeper agent. That I just didn't have it in me. That I just wasn't that kind of person. But Casey had clearly stepped off some personal cliff in her mind. Her eyes welled with more tears. It's true. I did say that, she replied absently. She was full of self-doubt about everything she had thought to be true. I thought it was true when I said it. But you do it. The pictures on the wall show it. So, I must have been wrong. Max chewed his anger silently. He was not going to give the pendant to Jadith, no matter what. He would even die if it came to that, he decided. The foursome were startled to hear a far-off train whistle. It was followed by the faint but distinctive steam locomotive chug-chug sound. Was that a train? Sasha asked. Yeah, it was, Ian replied. It came from over there, Casey said, pointing towards one of the arches and moving towards it. The rest followed. As they did, they found to their astonishment that when they stepped onto a plane that seemed to be at a tilt, it became right side up as though gravity had shifted just for them. They found the source of the train whistle. It was the arch showing the forest valley. Down, far down below, in the valley, they could just make out a steam engine, with a plume of smoke billowing out of it into the dusky sky, punctuated by sparse, winking starlight. But then, Ian seemed to realize something and recoil backwards. That, that does not look like a train from modern times. It looks like a very old train from a long time ago. Ocean Park in Starland has a train like that. 
I've been on it bunches of times, Casey replied smugly. No, Ian said quietly. I don't think it's like that at all. That's not an amusement park ride. I think we're looking at an actual train from a long time ago. But Max was suddenly distracted. Casey had stepped up onto one of the nearby planes again, exploring. Now she seemed to be walking sideways on the wall. Without warning, she suddenly slipped behind a dodecahedral stone, outcropping and out of sight. Casey! Max shouted. Casey! When she didn't answer, Max jumped up after her. Stay here, he said to Ian and Sasha. They nodded. He didn't need to chase them down also. Max followed her steps and slipped behind the same outcropping. There, he saw another arch containing a scene of a tropical rainforest. Casey was already on the other side of the arch. There she stood, waist-deep in water in the rainforest. She looked lost and panicked. She must have done something impulsive or accidentally fallen into the arch. Whatever had happened, she was presently confused, scared, and yelling for help. Over here, Casey, Max yelled back. He waved, but she didn't seem to see him. Where are you? Just come back this direction. Follow my voice. The arch is right here. No, left, Casey. There you go. Okay, now reach forward. And as soon as Casey extended her groping hand near the horizon of the arch, Max grabbed it and pulled her back through into the chamber. Casey just stared up at him. I, I, I couldn't see it. The arch, I, I mean, I, I just, I went through and then it was gone. I couldn't tell how to get back. I know. It's all right, Max said. You're back now. Max was about to ask her how she had ended up in the rainforest arch in the first place when he noticed a shopping cart laying sideways on the ground nearby. What the? What was a shopping cart doing here? There was a piece of plastic affixed to the cart to identify where it belonged. It said, Food Universe. Food Universe? Max knew Food Universe. It was the major grocery store in Starland. The cart seemed to have rolled downhill from a steep plane from another nearby arch set into what was presently the ceiling. Max had been so focused on helping Casey that he hadn't even noticed it. But now, both he and Casey gasped as they recognized the scene inside this arch, the Starland Food Universe parking lot. Max stepped up to get a better look, expecting this plane to gravity shift for him like the others had done. But to his surprise, this time, it didn't happen. He merely slipped off the tilted plane and back onto the floor from which he had come. He tried a few more times with no better results. There was no way to get up to this particular arch. Without the gravity shift, the plane was just too steep and slippery. They could only watch helplessly as people milled around the Food Universe parking lot, put grocery bags into their cars, and drove around looking for parking spots. Casey looked up wistfully at the scene. Getting back to a normal life in Starland would be so easy if there were only a way to get up to it. But there wasn't. Wordlessly, Max turned and he and Casey started climbing back down towards Ian and Sasha. Just then, an exotic bird, something like a parrot, swooped into the cavern through the arch showing the beach scene. The bird seemed startled by the presence of the children. It swooped and darted in surprise as the children screamed and covered their heads. Then, the bird zipped through the arch showing the drizzly city. Ian watched it fly around in the scene with great interest for a moment, before it disappeared entirely from view. These arches, I think they're portals to different times as well as places, Ian said. How do you know? Max asked. Well, I think we're looking at a train from the 1800s in that arch. And in that one, the one the bird just went into, I think that's a city in 1900 or so. Of course, that beach could be any place, any time. The Caribbean a million years ago, or yesterday, take your pick. But that snowstorm, I'll bet you anything, that's an ice age. That would also explain why this whole chamber is so weird. It is like we're in a book, but one where the pages have been twisted and looped in on each other like Mobius strips. Just like the wall out there was saying. The pyramid is a book. We just saw an arch that went to the Starland food universe, Max said, and explained what had happened. Well, it's a good thing you didn't step through it. There's no telling what year that was. You could have ended up in 1980, for all you know, with no way back. All I know is, it can't be the present. The pocket is the present. 
It has to be sometime in the past. Max nodded and Casey went white. She knew that if she could have gotten to that arch, she would have jumped through. And by now, she would already be trapped in some other time. Presently, the exotic bird flew back into the chamber again. But now, it held a long string of sausages in its beak. A man in a blood-stained butcher's apron appeared on the other side of the drizzly city arch, chasing the bird. He suddenly looked puzzled. He couldn't figure out where the bird had magically disappeared to. Max flinched for a second. The butcher seemed to be looking right at him. But it was suddenly clear that the man didn't see him, just as Casey hadn't been able to see him from the rainforest. Evidently, arches were like one-way mirrors. One could see out of them, but not in. The butcher was probably looking at a brick wall on his end. Puzzled and disgusted, the butcher waddled off to the left and out of view. Meanwhile, the bird made straight for his home arch, the beach scene. It passed over the threshold, sausage links dangling from its beak, and was gone. The bird seemed to have learned how to find food through the various arches, and was quite used to exploiting all that they had to offer. Ian watched the bird as though it were a revelation. Something... it had something to do with... His eyes popped open. I think I know where the pendant is! Ian suddenly blurted. Max stared at him. You do? Where? Max asked, looking around. It's here! Oh, that's brilliant! It's just not here yet. But it's going to be, any moment now. What? Ian, makes sense. That's why it's impossible to find until the right moment. Because right now, this second, the pendant doesn't exist. Not anywhere. Ian! Max shouted, growing impatient now. Max, Ian said, finally calming down. Anki is going to hand you the pendant through one of these arch things. He hid the pendant in time. The pendant is just going to skip over the thousands of years in between then and now. That's why he made this place, this pyramid. It's a book with folded pages, a book that bends time. The hairs on the back of Max's neck stood straight up. That's brilliant, Sasha said. Even if I should reveal the exact spot where it is hidden, still they would find only sand, because it's not here to find. It's not anywhere. Not yet, anyway. But even if Johnny Siren himself were here right now, he couldn't get it. Max nodded. So, Enki sent it into the future. That's how he, quote, hid it so perfectly. And that future is our present right now. Only when it is time for it to be found, can it be found. Max considered this for a moment and then asked, But what I don't get is, why toss it through the arch at all? I mean, Jadith's here in the future. Siren's here. The future is dangerous. Why doesn't Enki just keep it with him in the past where it would be safe? But Sasha shook her head. You're not thinking. Everything in the past eventually winds up in the future anyway. Time moves forward. She flicked a glance at Ian to make sure she was right. He nodded she was. The pendant would have had to have existed somewhere in the years between then and now. It would be vulnerable for thousands of years. It might have been found and used by the wrong person. But this way, Enki made sure the right person gets it. You, Max. Max sagged. It made sense. Thus, Enki had perfectly safeguarded against the pendant ever being abused. Until now. But if that wall was correct, Max was about to fail Enki's trust in the worst possible way. So, what now? Max asked glumly. Simple. Now that we know what we're looking for, we go find it, Ian replied. Um, Max said confused. What are we looking for? An arch with Enki in it, Ian replied, annoyed. He's waiting in one of them waiting for us to show up, right now. It's gotta be one of these here. Here, go look around. The inside of the pyramid was a labyrinth of arches, walls, and gravity shifts. Despite this, it didn't take them more than 15 minutes to discover a particular alcove with two arches. In the first arch was a scene from turn-of-the-century New York City. It showed a street in front of the Flatiron Building, men in top hats, women with parasols strolling, horse-drawn carriages, kids in dirty gray shirts and overalls wearing floppy newspaper boy hats, 
playing in the street like Dickensian Moppets. Max blinked. He had supposedly been there, in New York around this time. Petunia had as well. Did that mean something? Or was it simply a coincidence that this arch was a portal to this exact time? Max felt a dim memory stir in him. No such thing as coincidences. Deja vu. A wave of inevitability poured through him, a sense of foreboding. And the second arch in this alcove showed what seemed to be a mirror image, a reflection of this very chamber. It was as though it were a great looking glass, except that the children did not see themselves, where they would have been standing in a reflection. They saw someone else. Anki. It was a younger version, but still unmistakably him. And in his hand was the pendant. Anki stood exactly where the foursome now stood, but 7,000 years in the past. He was dressed like an Egyptian pharaoh, with a red robe and headdress. His fingers gripped a thin chain from which dangled a small glowing white stone. The jewel burned like distilled starlight bottled in diamond. The pendant. But Enki was not smiling, nor did he seem to be anywhere near as jovial as his counterpart in the book, Mr. E, had been. On the contrary, his mane was one of utmost seriousness. He was an ancient, executing a solemn duty. And, unlike the butcher in the drizzly city, Enki could clearly see the four children. That was very evident. His eyes swept over them, taking them in one at a time. Max, then Casey, Ian, and Sasha. So, Enki said without preamble, his voice coming through the arch slightly distorted. He was actually speaking to them from 7,000 years in the past, Max thought in awe. You are the ones who will come. Max swallowed and stepped forward. My name is Max. Max Quick. I'm a Nuberian, like you. You, I mean the other you you left behind in the book, sent us to get the pendant from you. And who are these others with you? Enki asked, looking behind Max, seeming disturbed. They are black-headed ones, are they not? Enki frowned in disapproval for a moment, and then said, You should not have brought your slaves with you to this place. Max blinked. That was something he had never expected Enki to say. Slaves? No, these are my friends. Max paused for a moment, and then added, In fact, I would trust any one of them with my life. It was Enki's turn to blink in surprise. Then he smiled slowly. Your pardon, then. In fact, I ask it of all of you. That is well. Very well. It is good that Nuburians and black-headed ones are such friends in your time. It is better than I hoped. I am pleased. Yet Enki was still clearly bothered by something. He hesitated as though debating internally with himself, and then said, But you who call yourself... Max Quick. Your name is Anlil. In your time, do you not even know your own name? At the word Anlil, Max's brain erupted. Images slammed through his consciousness faster than he could make sense of them. Anlil. 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 There were a thousand people calling his name at various times and places. Anlil. That had been his name, yes. That was his true name. But it was fleeting. The images faded like wisps of mist. He struggled to clutch at them with his awareness, but they dissolved and disappeared from his mind. Max shook his head and sagged. No, I don't. I can't remember my past. I didn't even know I was Nuberian until recently, and I seem to have done this to myself. The amnesia, or, or cryptonesia, I mean. I, I don't know why. Enki nodded. Do you? Max asked Enki hopefully. Enki shook his head. No, but there must be a reason for it. And it is beyond my wisdom and beyond my time. I dare not interfere. Already I see that I have risked too much by telling you your true name. But it is clear that you are meant for the pendant. And it is meant for you. So let it be as it was written. Receive the pendant. Enki extended his hand through the arch, 
the pendant dangling from his fingers, a dazzling white jewel swinging on a wispy chain. Max approached the vertical horizon of the arch, hand outstretched. No! Casey howled. They all spun to face her. She had backed away from the group, away from the image of Anki and the pendant, as though it were something that frightened her terribly. But Anki didn't flinch, nor did he withdraw his hand. Rather, he left it there, offering the pendant freely, waiting patiently to see what would unfold. It's happening, just like the word magic on the wall said it would. This only ends one way, with Jadith holding the pendant. Walk away! Oh, please, Max, just walk away, right now! We'll find some other way! Just please, please, please don't take it from him! Max turned again to face Enki. Desperation clutched his features. You have seen what happens, right? When you make a book, you see everything that will come to pass, even if it hasn't yet, right? Enki nodded. That is so. So when you made this place, when you wrote the word magic on the wall, you yourself saw what happens next, right? Enki nodded again. So should I not take the pendant? Shouldn't you keep it? Enki's eyes bored into him from across the ages separating them. You have to make the choice. I offer it to you, but the decision to accept it must be yours. You have the power of free will. You must use it. Max looked up at this past Enki. Mr. E had told him he had to retrieve the pendant. He clearly sent them here for the sole purpose of getting it. And Mr. E had to know what this Enki in the past knew. And when it came down to it, Max found that he trusted Mr. E. So Max made his choice. His hand reached through the shimmering horizon of the arch across 7,000 years and took the pendant from Enki. As soon as it was in his grasp, Enki nodded a farewell. His image wavered for a moment and then faded and was gone. The arch swam now in a kind of black mist between the worlds. Max turned to face Casey, Ian, and Sasha, holding the pendant. I think I made the right choice, he said. And then the one voice they hoped they would never hear again suddenly slithered into their ears. A mellifluous voice. A voice weary with an obsession that arced across hundreds of years. Oh, it was the right choice, Max. It was the only choice. Johnny Siren. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com. 